Tom, how are you? I'm very well, Simon. Very well. Tom, I wanted to have a chat with you just now because of what's going on in the country and and what I saw on TV last night, etc., down in London, Remembrance Weekend and some of the problems that we've seen with the, the massive crowds, demonstrators down there. And although we'll come back to crowd control, because I know you've got a lot of specialist knowledge about this, you spent a large part of your career as a gold commander, which you'll explain to us what that entails. But I wanted to, to just pick your brains, this is in the news just now, about your thoughts when you were gold commander, when you had overall command of royal visits, of major sporting events, of major concerts, etc., where thousands and thousands of people's safety is at risk mm-hmm. and needs to be controlled properly and procedures put in place. Mm-hmm. What do you think of politicians getting involved in that kind of thing? I absolutely despair. I write a, a column in the Scotsman every fortnight. I've written about it this week of just how foolish it is politicians becoming involved in any way in operational policing matters, especially when they talk about banning marches and demonstrations. It is almost never a good idea to ban a march and a demonstration. Never. Never. Because you've got to ask yourself the question, and it's the consequences question really, of if you ban a march or demonstration, what are the demonstrators going to do? Are they going to stay at home and uh, watch the telly or go for a quiet country walk? Or are they more likely to turn up anyway and carry out a guerrilla action of um, spasmodic pop-up demonstrations and disorders which you cannot properly control? It is always the best thing to have an organised demonstration and march in open sight where you can see it, where you can control it, where you can influence the route, where you can get a grip of the people who are organising it, where you can plan your diversionary routes if there's a a counter-demonstration, where you can position your, your reserves and you can place your surveillance units so they can pick up evidence and intelligence, it is always the best idea to be dictating the terms rather than reacting. You don't want to be reacting. And I learned that very early on as a gold commander back in the 1990s. We had a a very difficult annual Irish Republican march, actually, in Edinburgh to celebrate the birth of one of the great heroes in republicanism. And it was really difficult because we always had a massive counter-demonstration. Sometimes we were putting out 900, over 900 police officers to deal with this. And so one year, in the mid-90s, as I recall, we agreed with the local authority that we would ban the march. It was a huge mistake because they turned up anyway. And instead of dictating the terms and having a difficult afternoon but along a clearly defined and organised route. Instead of doing that, we ended up for a whole day and a night chasing our tails round pop-up demonstrations, disorders, where we never ever had the initiative and we never ever were able to bring enough force to bear to affect the outcome. It was a disaster. And now, when I say a disaster, I mean there was no serious injury but it was a a model of what not to do. And thereafter, I was always convinced that if you're going to have a marching demonstration, get it out in the open, 
where you can control it, you're always better placed. And so when I hear senior politicians talking about marrying marches, I find myself shouting at the television, you don't know what you're talking about. You do not know what you're talking about. And the irony, of course, is that Mark Rowley, the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, was the Assistant Commissioner for the Met for Public Order, probably the most experienced public order commander in the UK. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's just madness. Tom, you mentioned being a gold commander. I think that needs a wee bit of explanation. Did you just declare yourself gold commander or did that actually mean something? <laughs> no. Uh, sorry. That, the, the gold, silver and bronze were, are, are titles given to the command structure for any big event. And it used to be called strategic, tactical and operational, but they changed it to gold, silver and bronze. And now everybody knows what gold, silver and bronze means, and I'm going to explain it to you. The gold <laughs> commander is the strategic commander, so the gold commander is usually in the operations room looking at and hearing dozens of messages, looking at television screens, and looking at the big picture. They're taking a sort of a helicopter view of what's going on. The silver commander is the officer in charge at the site, on the scene. They're on their feet, and they're the people in charge of the actual event. Now, you can have several silver commanders. So, for instance, if you're dealing with a huge royal event, you might have a silver commander for the security of the route. You would have a silver commander for the venue. You would have a silver commander perhaps for crowd control. So you can have, there's only ever one gold commander ever, but you can have a number of silver commanders and the bronze commanders are the tactical commanders at the site. So you'd have one for public order. You might have one for a geographical area. You might have one to look after transportation, etc., etc. So it's like a pyramid, but it's now well accepted in the emergency services that we work the gold, silver, and bronze system. And is so that I, UK wide? Is that UK yes, wide, Tom? Yes. Yes, UK wide, and I think actually worldwide. I think worldwide they use that. They use the system. You talk about the gold command, which is and in the television pictures of the recent things from the Met, you saw gold command, and that's their massive operations room down in New Scotland Yard, where they've got ranks of that and where they take feed from their helicopter CCTV and they've got all their surveillance cameras and where the gold commander can sit and be aware of everything that's going on around in order to make strategic decisions. Tom, can I ask you, yeah. did you have a marching season through in the East Coast like we did here in the West Coast during the... Yes, and still yes we did. The West part of our force area was actually much more akin to the east part of your area than it was to the rest of our force. We used to, jokingly, we used to call our West Lothian Division East Lanarkshire. Right. And and there was some truth in that because it was much more akin in in every way. So we had a marching season, but we also had several big marches in Edinburgh that were designed to confront. There's no question that's what they were for. They were designed to make a statement and the opposition came out to make a statement as well. So it was a kind of a set piece. And of course, yeah. it was extremely, it was not only very disruptive for the whole of the city, who many of whom felt rightly that this was nothing to do with them, that this had been yeah. visited upon them. Yes. But yes, we had the same 
I don't think we had the same number of uh, intensity of marches as you had in the West, but we had a marching season. What I will say about the marching season, latterly, when I was working with their security services, the marching season was a busy season for us because there were fantastic intelligence gathering opportunities for us. You'll know an, an ex-divisional commander of mine, Lawrence McIntyre. I do, uh, yeah. Who was my commander at Govan in G Division. And yeah. he was the gold commander every other week at Ibrooks, And he That's was right. recognised and spoke That's to right. Tully Allen, probably like you did, about crowd control and about his commanding these events, which are highly, when they go smoothly, like they do nearly every week at football matches and concerts and et cetera, et cetera, nobody ever hears anything about them. It's a bit like undercover work or surveillance work. When it goes properly, nobody ever knows a thing about it. It just gets done and it either and it succeeds and it does its job and we all go on with our lives a wee bit wiser. But when something goes wrong, I'm thinking Hillsborough, I'm thinking other places that we've had horrible disasters over the years, then the, the spotlight turns on the people that, are, that have been in command who nobody knew about until that minute in time. I remember Lawrence McIntyre once. I was, a, again, a, I was always a young detective. I think I was maybe a wee bit older by this time. And there was people selling uh, Nazi memorabilia around uh, about Ibrook Stadium. And I got tic-tac about this. And they were selling Rangers scarves, etc. but they were also selling this very much more under black market stuff to do with Nazism. And I got the information, I got some photographs, and I did some of my own inquiries, and I fed this back to my boss, uh, via my boss, to Lawrence McIntyre. And Lawrence got me down to his office, and he said, uh, what I'm going to do is pass this to Special Branch, obviously, but we're not going to do anything about it, because I was ready to go and raid it, run in there with all the troops and take all the stuff off them. And I also had found out that they had a basement place not too far away within the governed precinct in Paisley Road West where they held meetings, etc. But that was only hearsay at that point. And what Lawrence said to me, and it always stuck in my brain in future years, was sometimes you run in and disrupt things, Simon, and we don't learn anything. We might arrest somebody, we might jail someone and confiscate all the stuff, but we might not learn very much. Whereas if we sit back, we know where they are, they know what they're doing, and we can learn a whole lot more about them and their associates, and who's frequenting the place, etc., etc., by just taking a wee step back and watching what's going on. And that's a wee bit like what you were saying there. We're better to know where they are. We're better to regulate the thing and police it properly and keep them penned into the areas. We've got the manpower there. We've got the resources in place, rather than scattering them. And we don't know where they are and what they're doing. That's absolutely right. There's also an issue about, and it's the old, an old police uh, wisdom. It's the same as the pub on the Saturday night. You'd never enter a fight you're not sure of winning. And in public order, that's important. You've got to pick your times. And yeah. sometimes I feel very sorry for the criticism of the Met. They're facing huge crowds, huge angry crowds. And because they don't wade in and drag out somebody that's got a banner or wearing a certain headscarf, they get yeah. criticised. They get criticised by people who have no understanding of how these things work. At some points in time, it's actually tactically stupid to, to wade in in situations like that because you end up losing control. I was on duty at Parkhead one day in plain clothes in, amongst, in the jungle, actually, in the old jungle at Parkhead. And it was during casual phase that we had, if it's ever ended. But we were doing intelligence work within there. And 
I always remember I seen you. I think he was maybe a chief inspector on the terracing, on the pathway down through the terracing. And as I was passing by, he said to the cops, he gathered a few cops and he said, go in and get that banner. And it was an IRA banner or whatever it might have been that was in the jungle, probably 20 feet by 40 feet across at half time. And I said to him, sir, I don't think that's a great idea. And he looked at me and said, who are you? And I said, it's good that you don't know because I'm going to tell you something. (laughs) And I proceeded to tell him quickly what was going to happen if he sent two cops in there to take that banner. It was just crazy. It was just a naivety that you sometimes got at big crowd events where people had never been in that. They'd never been in the crowd. Hillsborough has haunted me to some extent because I met David Duckinfield, the commander at Hillsborough, who went through uh, tremendous, who went through various trials and whatnot, was eventually acquitted. And you know what? That could have been me. And I'll I'll tell you why, because I I was a, a detective up to detective superintendent. And then in their wisdom, the authorities decided that I needed some uniform experience. They were absolutely right, by the way, and absolutely right, because there was so much I didn't know. And I was put out to a division as a deputy divisional commander, superintendent, busy city division. And almost the day that I landed there, I was given this huge order for the Royal Week, the visit of the Queen and Prince Philip, and all of the things that were happening in the city centre for which I was responsible. And I also was given responsibility for major sporting events. And I had a fair experience about investigating murders, but I didn't know very much about these things. And luckily for me, and this is where David Duckinfield and I are different, luckily for me, I had a very good chief inspectors who kept me right until I found my feet. And everybody thinks that it's only when you're a recruit that you need to be hand from people. Actually, I've found it's throughout your service. And no matter yeah. what rank you're in, that you should take advice and listen to what people say who are more experienced than you, even though they are several ranks more junior to you. But I've often thought about David Ducklefield and thought, because he was the same, he was a career detective. He was on the way up. I think he was a detective chief superintendent. And he was put out into uniform, I think, prior to the senior command course, because, and that's the reason I was put out, because prior to going on the senior command course, you need to prove that you have a rounded experience. He was put out, and the first job he was given was that fateful football match. He'd only been in uniform for a matter of days. Now, he had a very experienced deputy as well, but because of the way the game turned out, he, got, he lost contact with that deputy. And the critical thing about the about that Hillsborough thing was this business of opening the gate. Yeah. Opening the gate. If I'd been sitting there in the control room and they'd said, look, there's a huge crush outside this gate, boss. We've got to open this gate to alleviate the problem, the pressure. David Duckinfield did not have the experience to question it and say, hang on a minute, what happens if we do open the gate? Isn't that yeah. could that not be worse? But they said, Look, there's a huge crush outside the gate. A police horse was actually lifted off its feet by the pressure of the crowd. Now imagine that. He made the decision to, the fateful decision to open the gate. And I've often wondered, if I'd been David Duckinfield, if I'd been sitting in that control room, might I have not done the same thing? 
They're but for the grace of God. It's interesting, Tom, because I remember being at Parkhead, again, Parkhead, and it was during the, the, the days of the old firm games, we'd get 140, 150 arrests at these games. And, and all the trouble was outside the ground because right. of the delay in getting into the ground. Yeah, It wasn't like Hillsborough. It wasn't all focused on one gate. But I can remember the inspector that I was with going on his radio and saying, can we get the gates working faster? Can we get the turnstiles working faster? If we can get them in the ground, we can contain this. And that's the same principle, that he's hoping to get them into Parkhead. Nobody's thinking how many are in there already, and Parkhead was famous for having far too many people in it. That's right. The turnstiles didn't always tell the truth in terms of the numbers of people in them. It was funny because I did a lot of football matches too, and what struck me about that was that you you had to have, and, and we had an excellent football intelligence unit. We had several guys who were absolutely super. They would come and tell you two or three days before, look, this is going to happen. Yeah. We're yeah. going to have this gang of casuals. We're going to have that. This is going to, going to happen. And what we'd try and do is we'd take them out before the game. Yes, so, we, knew what um, buses, we knew what buses they were going to be on, what right. they had. We knew everything, right. where they were going and, to meet. But, but sometimes you'd find it changed. And, and I always remember one season particularly, for some reason or other, and I still don't know why, Aberdeen, brought the most horrible travelling support to Tyne Castle. Not anywhere else, just to Tyne Castle. Aberdeen didn't bring a horrible travelling support to Easter Road, only to Tyne Castle. And there was another season where Rangers brought a troublesome support to Easter Road. Again, not to Tyne Castle, but to Easter Road. And so there were dynamics going on there, obviously, Uh, conflicts within conflicts. It's also story about being very up to date within with intelligence. When I, the closest I came to coming a cropper, a real cropper with a big event, was the big Hogmanay celebrations we had in the city centre. And I was part of a change. Traditionally, the Hogmanay crowds used to gather in the old High Street near to the Tron Kirk, halfway between the castle and Hollywood Palace for people who don't know Edinburgh. And it's the Royal Mile, it's a bad slope, there's cobbles, it was usually wet and cold. And it was a dangerous location because there was no expansion places. There was no place for people to break out to if there was a crush. So we decided to promote a new Hogmanay down in the Princess Street in Edinburgh where wide open spaces and we'd put on a a show for them and entertainment. And Edinburgh Council were keen on it and the Tourist Board were keen on it and some promoters got involved, really good. And from the mid-90s, that's how it worked. But it soon became a victim of its own success. And in 1994-95, or it could be 95-96, one of these years, we had 400,000 people in and around the city centre of Edinburgh on Hogmanay night, most of them drunk. Yeah. Now, we, we had a good plan, and we had figured out that we would try and spread out the crowd by arranging five or six different stages in different parts of the city with different bands on them. So we had folk bands, we had Scottish country music, we had this and that, and therefore there wouldn't be this crush in the middle. And about a week before, one of the bands that was going to be on one of the stages was a band, I'll never forget them, they were called Ocean Colour Scene. Mm-hmm. And the week before Hogmanay, round about Christmas time, 
ocean colour scene had a big hit, what happened was, instead of people going to the different stages, everybody concentrated and congregated in ocean colours, round about the ocean colour scene stage. Luckily, we had plans in place. We, we managed to managed to get people into safe areas, but that could easily have gone very badly wrong. We could have had 20 and 30 dead there, no problem at all, because it was a wet, damp night, midnight, 31st of December, cold, everybody in high spirits, but a lot of them not looking after themselves because they had a fair bit to drink. And uh, I consider myself very lucky, and we changed things afterwards. We learned a lot from that. We changed things and we contained the crowd. And it's now much reduced. Edinburgh's Hogmanay, if it happens at all, has got about 20,000 people. A funny corollary to that story, which I must just tell you. The year after, we had barriers with all the rest of it and we'd put in a lot of safety systems. And I had a brilliant idea that we'd bring the police horses to Edinburgh Hogmanay. Now, they'd never been deployed at Edinburgh Hogmanay, but I was a great admirer of the police horses and the motorcyclists, but the police horses particularly at football matches were fabulous. They were great people. They knew what they were doing, and yep. there's not much will stand in the way of a huge, big horse weighing about a ton uh, with, <laughs> with an equally big person on the back of it. Anyway, we would have the horses, and I remember having a conversation with the mounted section, and they said, no, we didn't think it was a good idea, and uh, usual stuff. Didn't want to work Hogmanay, etc. I said, no, boys, listen, we've got to do this, all hands to the pumps. I want you up there. I want half a dozen horses up there. Okay. So we built a wee corral for them up off Princess Street, <laughs> and that was fine. So about a quarter past midnight, I get a radio message. Permission to send the horses back to headquarters. And I said, well, wait a minute. It's only quarter past 12. We'll be going for another hour or so. Why? What's wrong? It's for their own protection. There's dozens of people trying to climb on top of the horses and trying to kiss the horses. There must have been people from Glasgow there that night, Simon. <laughs> so, that, so that shows you. So the night after the New Year break, I had to go down and see the, the old mounted sergeant. I remember him sitting there. I said, listen, I said, you were right and I was wrong. <laughs> and he just said, I, this Republican match I was telling you about, uh, we had them for years and I've seen that I've used the horses to yeah. charge, uh, literally gallop up uh, one of the narrow streets of Edinburgh to to scatter a, yeah. a, a counter demonstration coming the other way, and and I tell you what, I was very effective. These guys must have all had a dependent relatives because they they found closes and stairs to hide in pretty quickly, rather than yeah. meet these guys on these horses. Tom, thinking about the, the current events down in London that we can now say have gone relatively well by the looks of it, from first impressions we've avoided any se Because what happens is we put cops' lives at risk, we put the population at large at risk, civilians that have got nothing to do with these events get wrapped up in it, the damage that's caused to property, everything that seeking headlines. And, of course, they get infiltrated. Uh, we'll talk about that again because that was a big part of my job was these infiltrated right-wing, left-wing groups who've got their own agendas and they see any event, any mass event like that as an opportunity to cause trouble and promote their own agenda, which is usually to disrupt our democracy at the end of the day. But in this instance, the allegation that was made by the senior politician was that the police were showing some kind of bias in making decisions about whether the event should be held 
and who should be allowed to march or have a demonstration. In your experience, being the Gold Commander, you would be a big part of that decision-making process about when a march would take place. How much cognizance did you give to who was wanting to hold the march? Is it even credible to suggest that the police would care? No, I think think she said more than that, though. I think that the politician in question said that the police enforced the law more rigorously against one section of the community as against another. So yeah. it wasn't about the organize. It wasn't about the permission for the marches. It was about the enforcement of the law. And yep. coming coming back to what we said earlier, this is about the art of the possible. This is about the good sense of actually not getting into fights that you can't win. Of actually stepping back and gathering intelligence and gathering evidence, and then going and identifying and knocking on the the door of the person. Rather than get into a mass brawl, I thought it was an objectionable statement for a number of reasons, principally because she doesn't know what she's talking about. (laughs) And it infuriates me when I hear politicians pontificating about public order and about this and that, when they, they do not have a clue and they're so arrogant that they haven't even taken the time to learn it. They haven't even sat down with Mark Rowley, the commissioner, and said, listen, commissioner, we're a bit concerned about this and this, and listen to what he has to say. Because if you want to talk about mass demonstration and public order, there's no better person to speak to than he, in terms of his experience. So I just thought it was, I thought it was daft. But the whole business, as we said, about banning marches is, by banning a march, you are condemning yourself to be reacting rather than directing whatever's going to happen. And that's never a position to be in. You should always be in a position to direct and not react. Yeah, perfect, Tom. And I can say that from the other side of the fence, if you like, when we would attend these royal visits, especially royal events, garden parties, whatever they happen to be, our objective was always to look for the danger, to look for the subvertive, to gauge things, to gather intelligence, to to be on guard and to make sure that all the procedures were in place, very much in conjunction with the special branch and the local police who were there policing Mm -hmm. the event. And it didn't matter what the event was. It didn't matter who the marchers were. It didn't matter what side of the fence they saw themselves on. The objective was always exactly the same, to preserve life and property, of course, and to protect the public from these events. Yeah, and we live, and, and we should be grateful for the fact that we live in a liberal democracy. You just need to turn on the television news for five minutes. to You should appreciate the country in which you live in. And, but one, one price of living in a liberal democracy is giving people who you don't agree with and who sometimes you find to be thoroughly objectionable that you give them the opportunity to speak um, and to state their case and to march and to demonstrate. And that's the price you pay. But I'd rather have it that way than live in a closed um, society where only if your face fits and if you're of a particular political or religious uh, viewpoint that you're allowed to that you're allowed to have your say. And I think there's a price to pay, and we've just got to accept it. And we don't want to end up with another Tiananmen Square talk or something of that ilk. That well, we or, or yes, or worse than that, or if you are a dissident voice, you disappear and you're imprisoned for years on a trumped-up charge or that sort of thing. We've got a lot to be, we've got a lot to be thankful for. 
in the place that we live in. But unfortunately, it's human nature that we don't know what we've got till it's gone. And it's interesting, Tom, that we're talking about these things at this time of year and Remembrance Weekend when, when we remember so many people gave their lives so that we could enjoy those freedoms as well. It's absolutely right. That is, that is the case. If you, we would have been in a completely different country if things hadn't gone as they did with all the loss of life twice in yeah. the past hundred years. In your lifetime. Tom, thanks again. I'm sure this is a subject that we'll return to because there's so much, so many aspects of it that we could delve into. And we will do in future, Tom. In the meantime, from Crime Time Inc., we'll see you soon. <laughs>